0: The following is a conversation with Dr. Sean Niemi. Sean is an assistant instructional professor in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering at the University of Florida. He teaches several undergraduate courses pertaining to mechanical design and manufacturing for undergraduates in the department. He won the student-nominated Teacher of the Year Award for the department in 2021. My conversation with Sean touches on the role and value of hands-on experiences in the contemporary engineering education environment, his thoughts on teaching, learning, and the value of failure in the arena of life. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Dickrell, and now, a conversation with Sean Niemi. So for people who aren't familiar with you or what you do, kind of how would you describe your role in this department?
1: Um, I'm the senior design slash design and manufacturing lab, or one of the senior design instructors and the design and manufacturing lab instructor I'm the, for lack of a better term, the design and build guy in the department. It's if there's something that needs to be made, I'm the guy who most of the department faculty come to, to ask questions on how to fix something, how to get it working, how to make it from scratch.
0: Interesting. Okay, so you said Design and Manufacturing Laboratory for students at the University of Florida in the Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering Department. The Design and Manufacturing Laboratory is, you know, it's a, not quite a rite of passage, but, it, you know, it's a known class. Yeah. So how do you, like, what is your response to that?
1: So, yeah, the Design and Manufacturing Lab course has been around for close to 20 years now. Um, and to call it a rite of passage, I think I think that's actually a great descriptor for for the class, it's the the students. Uh, it's a, geared as a sophomore level introduction to traditional manufacturing processes and design. And the class has evolved over the years and has taken on a couple of different forms. And now it's at one point in time, it was a gauntlet, um, and trying to keep it. What do you mean by gauntlet? Gauntlet. Uh, it was a two credit course with a 40 hour a week workload for some students. That's, a lot. That's yeah, it's a lot. And so, you know, now it's a, it's still trying to keep it as that, that linchpin experience for students, um, where it really helps them kind of begin to bridge that gap and that, that I concept of taking a design and actually making things and bridging that hands-on theoretical disparity. Disparity is the wrong word.
0: Just bridging the gap. Between yeah, bridging the gap between between the theory and b- between theory,
1: theor- bridging the gap between theory and practice um, when they're early on in their engineering career so they can really understand what the practical outputs of all of the theory are and how to have some experience to go back to and say okay cool when I'm designing this when I'm trying to figure out how to get this theory applied to something is it something that's actually a thing an op- a tangible object that can be made with the technology that's currently available to us?
0: Now, you say hands-on. For a lot of students who don't have a lot of hands-on experience, what are some of those experiences that they're going to get in the design and manufacturing lab?
1: So uh, in design and manufacturing lab, we start off with teaching students how to actually operate uh, themselves traditional traditional manual manufacturing equipment, uh, manual milling machines, manual lathes, Um, as well as some sheet metal fabrication tools, a little bit of welding, get them a well-rounded experience. And we actually have the students on the machines supervised by a teaching assistant going through making a set of parts um, themselves and understanding how the dimensions and tolerances on a drawing are actually achieved on the machine Um, so they can see what it's like to actually operate the piece of equipment that their their parts they would design in the future are made on.
0: Right. All right. So that's, you know, you said traditional manufacturing. Um, There is value, as I see it, in having people take a drawing and then have the part be realized. Um, Maybe if I'll play devil's advocate, is that a necessary skill uh, in sort of the middle quarter of the 21st century for engineers going through school? Now, I mean, I, I will say personally, I think it is, but. You know, how would you address people who are like, you know, we don't need to teach engineers how to run lathes. We don't need to teach engineers how to run end mills or milling machines because you know we have machinists for that, or we have you know CNC computerized uh, manufacturing equipment. So how you know, kind of, how do you address that? So understanding how parts are
1: made um, is crucial to keeping the inevitable the inevitable cost of that part down. Um, so. Having that basic fundamental understanding of the processes that are going into making the part is incredibly important for designing a part that can be made in a timely manner. And now even having computer-controlled machines that can make all sorts of crazy geometries that were weren't achievable in the 40s, 50s, 60s uh, due to the lack of technology, you know, making having a part that takes an hour to manufacture. Versus a part that takes a hundred hours to manufacture, the, the cost savings on the machine, even if the machine is automated, there's still tooling costs, power costs, wear and tear costs, etc. Being able to make a hundred parts in the same time as one is a huge benefit to industry. Um, so that's the that's the one part on kind of why is it important? Having students understanding and actually learning how to make parts. Um, not every student is going to go and work in manufacturing engineering or work in design. However, getting their hands on that equipment and understanding what their machinists would be doing, if they are one of the one of the percentile of students that do go into the manufacturing industry, have an understanding of what their technicians and what the people they are working with are going to be doing makes them a better engineer because they're now able to communicate more effectively with the team and they can go to the machinist and say, "Hey, this is what I was thinking for the steps to make this part. Is that what you're going to be doing? How can I revise this to make your life easier?" because they already have a little bit more of that fundamental understanding.
0: I guess as you were speaking, I thought of something that maybe you can agree or disagree with that, you know, even if you are an engineer in industry that sits mostly in a cubicle doing, you know, spreadsheets, having that class where you, you make something that'll make you a more well rounded engineer. So it's, it's you know kind of like a, a, breath elective in a lot of ways. And yeah. so, you know, how, how do you respond to that?
1: When I've talked with recruiters that are hiring students that are fresh graduates, they like to describe wanting a, a T shaped person, mm-hmm. which is somebody who has a lot of breath, but is also has a, an area where they are particularly well-skilled. Um, nobody wants the jack of all trades master of none what they want is a jack of all trades master of some yeah. um and so having that having that experience really goes to building that backbone and that breadth and having that that general understanding
0: i would imagine some of the students that go through that class they do become a master of that and and are i am assuming that's where you harvest your a lot of your student workers from is the people that you know take to it like fish to the water, and they really shine. Actually, interestingly, um, well, yeah, I do take
1: I do for for hiring lab assistants. I do go for a lot of the students who take to it like a fish out of water. However, that's not the only thing that you look for in a teaching assistant. Um, I can train anybody to be better on the machines, and I can train anybody how to teach other people how to use the machines. Um, what you can't train is the personability and the the engagement with students. Somebody who and somebody who's a rock star machinist and takes it like a fish out of water is nine times out of ten actually a mediocre instructor because everything is intuitive to them. And so it's fine to the kids who are engaged and who are want to learn and want to really dive in and understand things, as well as who are good communicators. They end up becoming the the teaching assistants, not just the kids who are loving to turn all the dials and crank all the wheels, they're they're too into it for the fun, not for
0: the, the understanding. Students hate hearing that, you know, interpersonal communication skills are necessary for being a functional engineer. But, no, I, I know what you mean. Yeah, especially in an instructing role, your ability to communicate and convey information such that the person you're talking to, like, understands, um, you know, the, the message at home. Uh, I, I understand that. All right, so yeah, that's that's DML, um, and I know that you work really hard at that because you know, like I see you, I see you pretty regularly, and you know, it's a big job. Do you like it?
1: I love the job. I I thoroughly enjoy teaching the class. I thoroughly enjoy figuring this out. Um, I've spent the last roughly year now redeveloping and redesigning the course to streamline it for both the students, so they're not having that monumental gauntlet of work, but we're still keeping the fundamental applications there. And it's a puzzle and it's a it's an engineering puzzle. It's a different type of engineering puzzle that engineers normally solve. It's a, how do I refine this and streamline it and make it a better course? And I'm I've been loving trying to do that as well as trying to discuss with industry some better tools to bring into the class to help develop some skills that are industry related for the students as I'm going through it. Uh, it's been a it's been an immense amount of fun. Um, as with any job, there are some downsides to it, but that is that is the nature of the beast. Is there's always parts that aren't the most fun, but once once it gets once it gets over this hurdle of redesign and gets into a more steady state, a lot of those stressors and pain points will end up fading, and it'll be true joy in the classroom.
0: You said industry um, and industry tools. Like, what does that mean?
1: One of the one of the goals of training engineers and engineering students is to prepare them for a job in the workforce and prepare them and have them be aware of the types of things that they are going to encounter. I think a lot of engineering students are really into the math and the science side of things. They enjoy the theory, and then some of them enjoy. The manufacturing and the hands-on, or the you know being a manufacturing engineer and working with the technicians on the shop floor, and how to make things better and how to improve things, and they forget that there is a subset of paperwork and reporting and documentation that has to go into it. So uh, one of the things that we did is brought in. This was brought in, in the past before me was engineering change notice procedures. So there's an there's an error. How do we go about reporting it and affecting that change? One of the things that I've implemented recently is manufacturing inspection reports. So you have a part drawing. How do you make? Sh- how do you document that your part was made to its specifications? Um, and so it's not exactly the way that it's done in industry, but it's one of those common practices to show students it's not just all fun and games. There's also these other things here that you have to go through, and to really show them that documentation is. Equally important as getting the job done, at the end of the day, um, there's that that mindset that people only care about, you know, the rocket launching or the new model of car coming off the production floor or the new joint implant being designed and going into the surgical the surgical room to get put into somebody, and they—that's all the flashy side of it. And students need to understand that the flashy side of it happens because you documented your processes, you got everything there and you got the FDA or the FAA to sign off that your stuff was safe to use.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of not sexy aspects of yeah. of being an engineer. But it's important and I and I was unaware that you did the more boring yet I would say legally important aspects of being an engineer because, you know, at the end of the day, we're supposed to also educate our students about you know, kind of the ethical ramifications uh, of being an engineer, you know, the professional obligation to make sure people don't get hurt, uh, things like that. And in a lot of ways, I explain to my students that sometimes we're the last line of defense against people who maybe are not as attuned to the pitfalls of just the reality of the real world where like designs are imperfect and things like that. So
1: regulations exist because of mistakes that were made in the past and we are the ones who can do the math and document everything to make sure that we don't fall into those same
0: mistakes again. Cool. So I just interviewed the Gator Motorsports. Yep. And I know that you are probably the faculty member with the most contact with the Gator Motorsports team. Did you listen to that?
1: I did listen to that podcast. How, I, how, how did they do? They did great. They're, I mean, the. The Gator Motorsports team, those th- that group of that group of students, they are they are absolutely amazing. They are, in my opinion, and admittedly I am biased, having been on the team when I was a student, as well as being their faculty advisor. Now I am biased, but I look at them as the creme de la creme of the students in the department. They are all incredibly high achieving, incredibly passionate, incredibly hardworking, and they they love engineering. They love the design. They love doing it, and they are incredibly passionate about developing skill sets that are going to make them better engineers in the future.
0: I forgot you were on the team. I forgot. Yeah.
1: I was on the team from 2009 till 2013 ish. Um, And then I had to focus on writing my master's thesis and graduating. So I stepped back and focused on grad school for, for a little while, but I always kind of stayed in an advisory role with them to give them some feedback and helped them out. And then when, uh, when my predecessor, Mike Braddock, uh, left the university in 2021, I took over as faculty advisor for the team as a way to keep on helping them out and mentoring them and coaching them.
0: I don't want to make this episode, you know, get in motorsports part two, but like, I am curious about a couple things, uh, your experience. So you were involved with the team and as a, as a student, uh, you know, a decade ago, basically, And then you are also involved with the team tangentially now. What are the differences that you can recognize as having that hindsight? I'll say two big, two major things. One is the team culture. Um,
1: When I was on the team, the culture was very grindy. Um, There still is a bit of a grind to it now, but there was a lot more of a, if you can't keep up, get out mindset. Uh, and the team now is much more inclusive when it comes to students who don't necessarily have 40 hours a week in addition to their courses to put into it. They love having the members who want to come in and work for two or three hours here and there to make parts. And they try and keep it a much more inclusive, welcoming group um, without that that stigma of, if you can't put in the effort, we don't want you around. Um, and that's not that's not to say that it was the wrong mentality at the time when I was on the team.
0: Um, well, sometimes culture is culture. But it was a, you
1: know. it was the culture the culture back then and you know. And maybe that was also being in it instead of being on the outside. I saw that culture more, and now that I have the bird's eye view, I'm able to see it a little bit see it a little bit differently. Um, the second thing that's probably the major difference is the types of students that are coming onto the team now um, in the past, the stunning majority of students on the team were, were gearheads. They were car nuts. They wanted to work on race car because of race car. Um, now more students are looking at it as a, this is a, an, instead of it being a car team, this is an engineering team that just happens to build a car. And I think that's the the biggest shift. And that's probably largely what has also influenced the culture on the, the, the team is the student's, don't do this because they want to go into the automotive industry or they want to go into um or they want to go into racing. There's still a subset that do, but the stunning majority of them want to do it because this team is the pinnacle of the engineering challenge for collegiate design competitions, and they want to challenge themselves to become the best engineers that they can, and it's it's about the engineering,
0: not about the car. I guess I would make a, a note to the listener if you haven't listen to the Gator Motorsports episode, uh, definitely do that because this conversation will make more sense. Um, but yeah more
1: sense if, if you listen to Yeah and it's
0: and I, you know in my opinion it was one of the it was one of the, my favorite ones that I've done because you know it was a lively discussion with a lot of like bright individuals. So
1: they're all brilliant and they all I think the they all they also recognize they recognize the importance of school, but they also see where the skills that you learn in school stop and they want more than what they're able to get just in the classroom. And that's universally the thing is a group of students who want more and they're willing to go above and beyond to get it.
0: Okay. So we talked about design and manufacturing laboratory, which in theory occurs somewhat early in your curriculum.
1: Sophomore year, maybe early junior year. Supposed to be. Supposed to be.
0: Uh, Let's fast forward to the end of your undergraduate career, which is senior design. right? So this is the the capstone class that supposedly you you integrate all of the the information that you've learned in your four plus years here. Um, Tell me about your involvement with that class. So actually when I was originally hired,
1: I was originally hired and tasked with teaching senior design. Um, We had recently implemented a second semester in the senior design sequence, that was a build course. So, and that was, I had about a year and a half to take the course from being, take that build course from being an elective to being a required course for all students going through capstone design. Um, So the course went from 13 to 20 students registered in it to a hundred students over the course of four semesters. so one of the things there, I mean, you, you nailed it, that course is about integrating everything. And so the, the two-phase course is, first phase is you're given a design task, you're given a set of requirements, design the object that will meet those requirements. And then the second phase is make it, test it, work it, prove to us that it meets those requirements. So similarly to design and manufacturing lab where we implemented these industry standard practices, um, the same documentation, testing procedures, Um, I actually took the experience from teaching senior design and brought it down into DML and just reduced the scope of everything. Um, So one of the things we did in senior design was uh, uh, project data management software. So centralized software for revision control, Um, and documentation and going through process workflows. This design is done. Now it needs to go and get checked. It needs to be checked by somebody who's not the designer. And then it either gets accepted or rejected. And then it goes into the manufacturing pipeline. Um, If it's accepted, if it's not accepted, it goes back to the quote unquote designer. They revise it and you iterate on that that loop on the entirely through an automated system. Um, And then testing procedures, test benches, test beds, How do we quantify that our design actually does meet the requirements that we either claim it meets or that we're required for it to meet at the bare minimum?
0: What's your goal for that class, you know, in terms of a student that coming into the the build portion of senior capstone design as they exit? What do you what do you hope that they have experienced? Students coming. I would like students coming out of that build class to
1: understand just how challenging it is to actually get things to work correctly. Everything we use as consumers works. We get isolated from just how challenging it is to actually make those things work correctly for the consumer. So if students can come out and have an understanding of this is what actually goes into the process of making a thing work, when they get out there into their first job, they're going to have a better perspective on the legacy of work that led into what they are currently working on to revise and redesign and work on. And I guess as a secondary thing, I want them to not just understand how challenging it is, but also I want them to have that rewarding sense of, I got this thing to work. I was able to actually go and in the course of a semester take something from a CAD model to 3D printed parts and some motors and actually figured out how to get all this this stuff cobbled together and it worked. And even if it's doesn't quite meet requirements, which is more common than we would want, they still have that sense of accomplishment of, I may have missed it being perfect, but I got it done. I got this thing working. And I I accomplished this end goal of having a, a working, fully functioning device at the end of the semester.
0: You're speaking in the first person, but I think you and I both know that it's not an individual senior design right. class. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a group, group project. project. Okay, yeah. It's a
1: group project, but there's so much, it's a group project, but I guess I should be saying we did this, but there is always a sense of individuality there with the students. And so I want them to have their individual feel that they individually contributed to making this work.
0: Well, hearing you talk, I think probably another another thing that students may appreciate is engineers rarely do it alone, right? You know, like it, it, it takes, it didn't quite take a village, but it takes a small army of engineers to make anything Work like you say, you know, and, and I would say non-engineers, rightly so, are insulated from the reality of a lot of the, the thorniness of real life, you know, and and maybe that's why we go through four or five years of of school to learn the skills where if you get enough of us in large enough numbers, you know, we we can have one collective brain. To make yeah. things to make things actually work yeah. and so with yeah the, I mean I, and I with think enough individuals that have two brain cells in a room you wind up with a hundred brain cells working together yeah. there is an individual achievement aspect to it but there's also you know if you've ever played a team sport and the team itself achieves you know like the, it's a it's a sum of all the individual components hopefully you know in a, in a in a functioning group and sometimes they get to experience what like a less than functional group Is But I mean, I I think that's probably rare at that point, because at that stage in their career, most of the people have figured out what it takes to play well with others.
1: A lot of them have. Um, There is still the stigma. Uh, It's one of my favorite jokes to say is I want the group members from my undergraduate lab courses to be the pallbearers at my funeral so they can let me down one last time. I never heard that one. um, So, you know, there there still is a little bit of that stigma. Um, even at that level, and this is, you know, most of the students are taking it. And they're graduating. They've had bad experiences with other students well, I mean, in the courses, reality, you know? and it is just reality. But it's also trying to get that environment where everybody wants to put in the effort, so that way you don't have those lackluster groupmates. Even the lackluster students are motivated to to step up and help out because they want that
0: that excitement of completion and of realizing. Isn't that such a good kind of uh, learning experience outside of the, the technical stuff of trying to get, trying to motivate people, yep. right? Like trying to motivate your teammates. There's a little bit of like a leadership component in there. Like, you know, what do leaders do? They motivate people, yep. you know? And so like, how do you get someone in your group who's really not quite pulling their weight to pull a little bit more weight? Um, you know, and that's not something that you or I teach,
1: It's not something that, it's not something that really anybody teaches, at least not to engineers, like not in the the traditional engineering curriculum. I think they're, they're engineering leadership courses and, you know, some students might do a business minor or something along those lines where they pick up some of those managerial skills, but the stunning majority of them, you kind of have to figure it out as you go. Um, And so putting them in an environment and then put them in an environment where it helps to. Force them to figure it out faster.
0: Now I'm going to think about it. You teach a lot. Um, what what other courses are you teaching?
1: So actually, this semester um, I'm co-teaching with a professor, uh, Dr. Basinger, over in Industrial Engineering. We co-developed a CNC manufacturing course, um, and we started working on this course back in 2019. We taught it for the first time fall 2021 as an independent study course for a couple of students to try things out. And we've been continuously evolving it. Um, We actually just got funded through um, a DOD subcontract to run uh, some CNC training boot camps uh, for workforce development, kind of a project um, that didn't come out of developing the CNC course, but it kind of happened in parallel with this CNC course, um, as we were doing it, we found some people doing similar things and got in contact and they said, Hey, do you want to be on board? And we said, yes. And a year later, now here, here it all is, you know, working out for us. So we've got, it's a lot of stuff. So that's one of the other things I teach. Uh, that's what I've currently got going on. So DML CNC class, senior design, Briefly taught some study abroad classes in Berlin. I Actually, took over your study abroad program for for a couple of years. Um, That's a fun class. It was a fun class. Uh, that was, I think, that was actually fun because it was uh, right after I defended my dissertation. I got thrown into teaching that study abroad class. So I had no clue how to teach. I had never been abroad before, and it was all right. Cool, Sean. You're going to Berlin for six weeks or for four weeks to teach a bunch of undergraduate students. You're the responsible adult. Four weeks after graduate four weeks after defending your dissertation, you haven't even
0: gotten the diploma yet. Good luck. Um, well, good news is it's a, I wouldn't say it's a low bar, but you know, like you got to show up and you got to put an effort.
1: Yeah. Show up and put an effort. But it was a, I think it was a, I actually will say I was, I think it was the best way to learn how to teach because it wasn't high pressure. Um, it was, it was 20 students, not even 20 students, 15 students from UF. I kind of got to make things up as I go and figure out how my teaching style worked. And it wasn't, it wasn't an abet accredited course where I had all this documentation and reporting to it. It wasn't a core curriculum course. It was a special topics
0: elective. So it was a, it was a lot of fun. You know, we have that shared experience when you think about the time you spent in Berlin. Uh, like what's a, what's a favorite memory that you have? Um, watching sunsets from on top of a mall parking
1: garage, rooftop bar, oh, yeah. and you have the entire city skyline. You can see the I can't remember what it's called. It's the the Space Needle or whatever in in Berlin, the tar- the big, the, the, big, the, big ta- the big tower in Berlin, and you can just watch the sunset over the city with all of the construction cranes, the entire city skyline pr- sprawled out in front in front of you, while enjoying a fresh Pilsner, yeah. in you know the best with some of the best beer in the world. Um, just like that's one of those just unique experiences that I feel like it's a very Berlin experience, not something that you really get.
0: Yeah, I, re- I remember that place. I don't actually think it exists anymore, but yeah, it was uh it was an, basically an outdoor kind of German beer hall on the top of a parking garage and a mall, like kind of in southeastern Berlin. So yeah, but like you get a good view of the city. I remember that place. Yeah, no, like that. I I too have memories of that place. So like nice nice shared shared spot. You're right? actually the one who mentioned it to me offhand. Um, as a Sean, if you get the chance go check this out. It's cool. Yeah. If any students are listening, you should definitely check that, that program out or, you know, any study abroad, really. Um, if you can fit it into your, to your academic schedule, because Even if you can't fit it into your academic schedule, do it, it's yeah, worth it. It's, yeah. I think one of the best experiences.
1: And I will say a lot of the students that I had, I stay in contact with them. And to this day, that experience is one of the, the great experiences. And they still continue to talk about just how great an experience it was being over there, being abroad, like not even the class—they don't care about the class. Let's be honest. Um, but being abroad—that's well, our jobs. That's make our it, make, to make, make them to care. care. Yeah. But you know, being over there and having that having that experience of learning in a different culture and getting that experience of being somewhere outside of the outside of the U.S. Um, and being a stranger in a different country—I think—is another humbling experience for students that really helps make them more successful when they come back as engineers.
0: Yeah. And if you want to talk about study abroad classes in general, I think for a lot of the students that I taught in Germany, that was the first time they were kind of autonomous adults with agency, you know, like they weren't at home, you know, they weren't, they weren't here in Gainesville, you know, they they were out in the world doing things and making decisions for themselves. And, and it was always interesting for me to watch, in a, even a very short period, a couple of weeks, there was definitely an evolution of maturity. Which I mean, in some ways, is very forced, right? You know, you, you are in charge of yourself in all times, right? And like I, I would tell, I would tell the students, like, look, I am here to maintain your safety at a minimal level, but like I'm not watching over you, so like be careful out there, you know. And and so I think that's true for any study abroad class. Yeah, I had great luck. I
1: had. Um... Only had one, only had one close call, and that was a student who had uh, pepper spray on her keychain uh, going into trying to go into the Reichstag for a tour. They were not very happy about pepper spray. Um, so that was one little, the one little snafu of two years of teaching, two summers of teaching that that course. That was the only the only instance of mild panic, and that was a you're in a foreign city and you want to have something. You want to have some form of self defense, just government buildings tend to be a little bit strict.
0: And it wasn't even a, it wasn't even an intentional thing. It was just an oversight. Yeah, the only corollary story that I would have is there was I think when I was there, there was a little bit of labor unrest, right? So there was a there was a like a protest march in the streets and I did not witness it, but I heard about it that one of the students was like, Oh, what's this parade? And he like he jumped in with the march, uh-huh. you know. And luckily, like the other students told him, was like, yo, this is actually is like a a politically charged environment right now. And, you know, down the street was the cops in riot gear. And luckily, like he didn't, luckily he pulled out before things got hairy. But I heard about that story after the fact. And I just, you know, kind of face palm and shake your head and go, "Woof, like, good, we missed that. What do you like to do outside of work man because you're a busy guy yeah. you know do you even have time for anything
1: yeah I got I've got no yes um, you, you make time you make time in the, you make you make time of these things when you when you uh, when you need it um, I've got I do a little I dabble in a little bit of woodworking on the side from time to time um, most of the furniture in my living room in my apartment I actually have I actually have built. Um, so that's a little bit of fun for me. Um, I, uh, when I was in grad school, I got into homebrewing beer, which I think is the perfect hobby for a mechanical engineer. It's thermodynamics. It's fluid flow. It's process control. It's tinkering and trying out new things and you know, going through the – what is it? The, 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 the engineering process is try something, test it, revise, repeat. And just go through that cycle. And so brewing beer is one of those perfect things. You come up with a recipe. You give it a try and you go, this is delicious. Great. I got lucky. You try it and you go, oh man, this is a little bit, not quite what I was looking for. What can I, what can I look at? And I tweak, what, what knobs can I turn? So it's a fun non-work related hobby that still exercises that, that little bit of the brain that likes to solve problems. Um, so I got into doing. Doing a little bit of homebrewing and brewing beer with friends.
0: Well, let me ask. Yeah, let me ask some questions about that because I I know nothing about about homebrew. Um, what's the from start to finish? What's the time constant for brewing beer? It depends on the process you are using. You can
1: minimize it if you ballpark use ballpark. Me. Um, if you're doing it using like standard traditional all grain processes, like they would use at a at a standard brewery. Um, and you're doing it at home. You're looking at probably low end three hours into the fermenter, high end five ish hours to get from grain and water into the fermenter, and then anywhere from five days to two weeks of fermentation, and then another week to carbonate. So but that's all that's all passive. That's it sits in a dark corner in your closet or in a chamber that's temperature controlled depending on the beer you're trying to make. And it goes from there, but to go from like the day, it's a great way to spend a Saturday afternoon. In my opinion, it's about four hours of time.
0: But it takes a little while to go through that loop then, right? Yeah. You know, you, when, when you said, you know, like, oh, I'll just tinker with something and change something. you don't get instantaneous feedback. Oh yeah. You, you have to wait basically a month is what roughly, right. yeah, maybe a little less, but like weeks, you have to wait weeks, yeah. two weeks, two weeks, three weeks to see if your, your changes,
1: um, which I guess also is actually kind of fun because that's actually kind of what engineering is like in the real world. Mm-hmm. You said you get a product made or a prototype made. You ship it out. You get, you run a, a test study on how well it works, and then you get that feedback bu- back three weeks, six months, two years later, and you have to go back and remember, what did I do? What, what was the reason why I did this? Yeah. Um, and another thing, you do I do batches in parallel. I'll make...
0: That was going to be my next question of how many how many do you have running at one time?
1: I've only I only have space for two simultaneously, but I have I will do two two batches in parallel to test out either two different things or one twist on something, so you know, what happens if I change if I I'm just going to do the same same base recipe but with two different types of hops.
0: Which one do I like better to codify into the the recipe. So you did you went to school here? I went to school. And I guess if there are students listening, you have some advice that you could give them. Oh, yeah. um, sometimes sometimes I ask this of people that I interview for this, for this podcast. You could give it to yourself if you went back in time, or you can give it to someone who is roughly your age now. What would you say? Don't be afraid of failure. Biggest piece of advice
1: that I can give to any student, to anybody at any stage, well, there's two pieces of advice. Number one, don't be afraid of failure. You're going to screw up. You're going to fail. It's an, it's inevitable. Embrace it, learn from it. Um, the only failure that is bad is one you don't learn from. To that point, um, there are going to be times where you have to make choices between two things that seem to be, there's no right or wrong answer. You have to commit to one. And the worst decision you can make is to not make a decision. And so, and you might end up realizing that you made a decision and it caused a failure. When you fail, own it. Say, yep, that was on me. I screwed up. Let's go and try and fix it. People will not remember that you failed. They will remember that you were there helping solve the problem, even if you're the one who created it.
0: That's good advice. It's really good advice. I
1: hope. I mean, it comes, I failed out of school my freshman year. My first semester's GPA was 1.6 and anybody who talks with me, I'm very open about the fact that I, I did that. The trick was, why did that happen? How do I fix it? How do I recover from it? And not letting that failure be the thing that
0: defined me. It was the overcoming it was the thing that defined me. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please stay tuned for more insightful and interesting conversations with people in engineering, industry, and science.